You know, I've always loved hearing real-life stories of people who become followers of Jesus. When our kids were growing up, we used to pass the time on car trips by playing cassette recordings from the Pacific Garden Mission in Los Angeles. They were dramatic audio accounts of salvation stories. And I can still see our three kids rolling their eyes when that organ music intro came on. Oh, Dad, do we have to listen to that? <laughs> but they were soon sitting forward, their eyes wide, their chins resting on the back of the front seat. This was before the seatbelt laws. <laughs> We'd stop for gas and they'd say, Don't turn it off, Dad. Don't turn it off. There was the story of Tony Fontaine, a popular singer with his own television show. In 1957, he was nearly killed in an automobile accident. Prior to the accident, Fontaine was an atheist, but he claimed that while in a coma, after the accident, that he had a, a vision of Jesus offering him a second chance in life. So when he got well... He realigned his priorities, he gave up his mainstream career, but he had great popularity and great influence as one of the most well-known gospel singers of his generation. And then there was the story of C.S. Lewis, who was christened in the Church of Ireland, but he abandoned his faith and lapsed into agnosticism in his teens and twenties. But at age 30, Lewis returned to his Christian faith, and he became a brilliant and articulate defender of biblical Christianity. His books, The Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity, have been changing the lives of countless youngsters and skeptics all over the world for over 60 years now. Anne Rice is a popular contemporary novelist who at the beginning of her career, wrote gothic fiction and horror and erotica. One of her most famous works was The Vampire Chronicles, and there was a movie made from that series called Interview with a Vampire. It was Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise in the starring roles. She was an atheist, but she came to Christ in 2004. And she has written mostly Christian books since then. Now, while I love hearing these stories, I have to admit that I'm sometimes a little skeptical about some of the conversion stories I hear because they just don't seem to match up with the lives that these people live. I admit to being shocked a few years ago when I heard that Larry Flint, the editor of Hustler magazine, claimed to be a born-again Christian. But he continued to publish pornography. And I was shocked again when I heard that Jane Fonda, Hanoi Jane, had made a profession of faith in Jesus. It seemed like that didn't last too long. And then I was shocked again when I heard that professional athlete Deion Sanders, remember him, primetime, Neon Deion Sanders, I heard that he had been baptized and had danced for joy, but but his life just hasn't demonstrated the lordship of Jesus. Well, I think the 12 disciples must have felt a little bit shocked in the same way 
when in John 4, they learned about the woman at the well who had become a follower of Jesus. And you may want to go ahead and turn to that passage in your Bible or pull it up on your screen. John chapter 4. It is the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And she was a Samaritan. She was a sinner. She had been married five times and was in a live-in relationship with a man to whom she was not married. But Jesus came into the world to save people just like her. And so he sent the disciples on ahead into the town of Sychar to pick up some fast food so Jesus could intercept this woman at Jacob's well by himself in the middle of the day. He wanted to be sure that she was treated with compassion and respect. And he talked to her about the living water. And he told her if she drank it, she would never thirst again. And she was so intrigued and so excited that she ran off toward the town forgetting why she had come to the well. You can read about it in verse 28 of John chapter 4. It says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And when the disciples returned, they offered Jesus a Chick-fil-A sandwich. But he said to them in John 4.32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples said, well, somebody else must have brought him some food. But Jesus clarified in verse 34, my food, here it is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. In other words, Jesus would rather witness to people than eat. He was somehow filled up by this encounter with the Samaritan woman and her response to what he said to her. And just then Jesus looked over the heads of the disciples and he noticed her coming back and bringing her friends to him. And that's when Jesus said in verse 35, do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now we all know that the primary mission that Jesus fulfilled on this earth was to find and to save lost people and it has not changed. And his last words, among his last words to his disciples are John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So if we're serious about being his disciple, it means that we're going to be on mission with him. And if we're going to be on mission with him, then we're going to have to revision. That is, we're going to have to see things through his eyes. And here's what we need to see. First of all, we need to see the world as ripe for harvest. Now on the surface, it's, it seems like just the opposite is true. It looks more like the most anti-Christian period in history. The Ten Commandments have been removed from the courtroom walls. Prayers are disallowed at civic events. Creation is intentionally omitted from school textbooks. Wholesale abortion is government-subsidized. Marriage law has been redefined as no longer 
only between a man and a woman, and we live in a day when it's intellectualism and hedonism and materialism that reign in the culture. And so some Christians don't witness because they don't want to be accused of being ignorant or intolerant. Some Christians back off and they rationalize, well, the world just isn't ready. It just isn't ready for the gospel. But remember the words of Jesus. Don't say four months more. And then the harvest, I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. You know, the prodigal son seemed like he was in a far country, but in reality, he was only a moment of truth and a short distance from a coming home party at his father's house. The world seems a long way from God, but I'm telling you that many in this world are fed up with living in a pig pen and ingesting pig slop. They're starved for real love and peace and joy in this life and real hope for the life to come. I've enjoyed playing hide-and-seek with our grandkids over here at the... uh, at the fort, at the Newburg Park. Some of you have been over there. You know what I've noticed is that sometimes the grandkids will find a really good hiding place and they'll think, I'll never be found here. But you know what I've noticed? After about five minutes, if they aren't found, they begin to clear their throats and they begin to make noises so they'll be found. So people today appear to be hiding from anything spiritual, but you can hear a lot of them calling out to be found. Like Madonna. When she was asked if she was happy, she replied, quote, I'm a tormented person. There are a lot of demons I'm dealing with. I want to be happy. I'm working on knowing myself, and I'm assuming that that will bring me happiness, end quote. I hear her calling out to be found. Eddie Murphy said, quote, there isn't anyone who doesn't feel like they're missing something in life. No matter how much money you make, no matter how many houses you own, no matter how many cars you have, no matter how many people you make happy, there is still something missing. I hear him calling out to be found. And Jesus said, I And the living water, drink of me, and you will never thirst again. You know, the ripeness of this world for harvesting was illustrated dramatically to me 13 years ago, right after 9-11. At the Bible College, we arranged for a special chapel service after we received the news about the collapse of the World Trade Center towers. And word spread throughout our city that we were having this special chapel service on campus, and the chapel was packed out. And I saw the biggest beer distributor in the four-state area in the audience. And he made a profession of faith. He joined my men's group. And he put his warehouses up for sale all within weeks. In the front row, I saw the president of a Fortune 500 company who had recently built a literal mansion with a statue of himself in front of the house in the center of a circular drive, and it had this inscription on the statue, Monument 
to a self-made man. After 9-11, he became a Christian. He changed the, pres- the inscription to read, with gratitude to God. <laughs> On the following Sunday after 9-11, churches across the United States were full with higher attendances than on Easter. Now, why is that? Why is it that people are offended if you mention the name of Jesus to them one day and then next they're seeking his face in worship and they're asking for prayer? I'll tell you why. Because a crisis, whether it's personal or national, Impresses the reality of life and death on anyone and everyone. You realize what's most important. Listen to this statement made by a UPS pilot who landed his plane at Kennedy Airport the morning of 9-11. Here's what he said. I had never seen the skyline of New York City look so beautiful as it did that day. Two hours later, it was gone. I had to give my life to God. Don't say for more months. And then the harvest, I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And if we're going to be on mission with Jesus, it also means that we've got to see the church as ready for the harvest. Jesus did not say, I want you to take a course in agriculture. He didn't say, you need to buy some more state-of-the-art farming equipment. We don't need a class. And we aren't dependent on the latest technology. He said the fields are ready to harvest now. He said it then. It is more true today. And he's already given us everything we need to make disciples. He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us. He's given us Christian fellowship and friendship to encourage us. He's given given us worship to edify us. We have the Word of God to instruct us. And we have the financial resources to underwrite every project for evangelism and benevolence. Preacher once said to his church, I have good news and bad news. The good news is God has provided the money to pay for our much-needed new building. The bad news is it's still in your bank accounts. (laughs) Well, some people today will support secular causes. They'll support superficial causes. But they set the church aside, labeling it as organized religion. Stripping Christ's church of its spiritual and eternal significance. Listen, folks. General Electric, Microsoft, Toyota, Harvard, the NFL. They may be impressive today. But they're all destined for extinction only the church is transcendent eternally the bride of Jesus Christ so I would be very careful about marginalizing the church or criticizing the church I I think I think the bridegroom might take offense now we who lead the church in the 21st century have got to do everything we can to ensure that there are two components present if the church is going to be ready for the harvest. The first is authenticity and the second is excellence. First, we've got to be real. God will bless a variety of methods as long as we minister with authenticity. I'm convinced that God blesses all kinds of churches, secret churches, purpose-driven churches, traditional churches, contemporary churches, blended churches, if 
There is authenticity. We cannot be playing church. We have to mean it with all our hearts. We have to be all in. Back in 2004, my longtime ministry colleague, Dr. Mark Scott, wrote a a piece about me that appeared in the Christian Standard. I didn't even know about it until it came out in print. And the one thing he said in that article that meant the very most to me was a very short sentence. Here's what it was. Ken is the real deal. Now that simple statement was so affirming of my faith and my values as a Christian leader. I want to be worthy of that. I want to be worthy of that and I want our church to be known for its authenticity. Because we live in a generation in which Christian leaders and churches are viewed with skepticism. And if there's any extravagance in your lifestyle, if there's any hypocrisy in your morals, if there's any insincerity in you, people will turn you off. So as a church, we want to always have more stocked on our shelves than we have in the display window. You you know what I'm saying here. Let's resist phoniness. Let's resist showiness. So people will know that what we're doing is real. Because God chooses the simple things to confound the wise. And he chooses the weak things to impress the strong. So let's be, let's be transparent. Let's be authentic. And then let's do things with excellence. Let's bring him our best. Because he deserves our best. We bring him our best, not as a performance, but as an offering. We serve him with our best because we want to influence others. Now, the most effective method of discipling others is one person winning the trust of another person and then introducing them to Jesus. Like the woman at the well who said, come and see a man, meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. But if this is out of your comfort zone right now, you can still You can still start by inviting your friends, inviting your family, inviting your acquaintances to our church. This is something that anyone can do. One person who knows about the Lord invites another person to church with them where they'll hear about Jesus. They'll meet his people, be impressed with the excellence by which God is honored. I just wonder this morning, out of curiosity, how many of you in this room this morning were invited to Crossroads by someone who was a part of Crossroads. How many of you were invited to this church by someone else? Put your hands up high. Let's take a look. Take a look. That's got to be at least half of our audience. That's the point. That's the way it happens. It's been true in every service. Last night, I'd say it was 60%. Another 50 or 60% in the service at 9 o'clock. And this one, that is... At least half of our church is here because there were people in our church that reached out and invited and brought someone else. And that's why it's important for us to have an uncluttered parking lot. And I want to deputize everyone who's here this morning to pick up any trash that you see in the parking lot as you come into the building. It's why we want to have the grass mowed, the flower beds tended. It's why we want to have faithful and friendly volunteers in the nursery. It's why we want to have greeters and servers and teachers and section hosts who do it with excellence. That's why we want to start our service on time and gulp, end it on time. The worship team works hard to rehearse 
We want the bulletin to be accurate, the words to be spelled correctly on the screens, sermons that are biblical and clear and relevant. And when the church honors Christ with excellence, people are fed and they will want to invite their friends and family. The church being ready for the harvest, that's where we are living right now here at Crossroads. In your worship bulletin this morning, there's a little section here under the heading Vision Nights. Beginning on October the 8th, we have a series of 10 identical evenings with dessert and beverages at the Sweetwater Conference Center to share with our entire church family where we're going as a church in the next two years. Pick out one of those nights. If you're an attender at Crossroads, even a casual attender, if you are a member of Crossroads, certainly make this a priority. One of those dates, October the 8th, October the 21st through the 23rd, 28th through the 30th, November 4th through the 6th, 10 identical nights at Sweetwater Conference Center. And if you don't sign up for one of those nights, we won't come and get you, but I hope you just have a horrible guilt complex that lasts about two weeks. (laughs) I've got to move on. Finally, to be on mission with Jesus, we've, we've got a revision. And see Jesus as reinforcing the harvest. Look at this. In John 4, 36, Jesus said, Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Jesus is the ultimate sower. We are the reapers working in the harvest. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Folks, we we do not go into the harvest alone. God once said to Ananias the prophet, go to Straight Street. I want you to talk to a man named Saul. And Ananias said, Lord, that guy, that guy is a conscienceless terrorist. But what Ananias did not know was that Jesus had gotten to Saul first and softened his heart and broken his stubborn pride. And Jesus said, go and make disciples and I will be with you. And if we really believe that Jesus is reinforcing the harvest, it'll change our attitude about making disciples in a couple of different ways. Number one, it'll it'll make us more bold. We'll have more boldness regardless of the obstacles. Folks, we're going to run into people who are ready to listen and respond. But then you may run into some people that are critical of the institutional church. That's where some people like to live today to excuse their need of God's forgiveness. And some people are hostile because biblical truth is not politically correct. When we say that homosexuality is a sin, that abortion is the killing of the unborn. When we say that Islam is a false religion, there are some people who think of that as hate speech. If you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven in this world of religious pluralism, you're going to be labeled as intolerant and narrow. If you insist that God created the world and nothing died until man sinned, There are people who will marginalize you as ignorant and unscientific. John Wesley used to ask young preachers returning from their 
pulpits. Was anyone converted? And did anyone get angry? <laughs> and if, if those young preachers answered no to both questions, no one was converted, no one got angry. He questioned their calling to ministry. When Peter and John were rounded up and they were beaten and they were warned not to say another word about Jesus, look at what they prayed in Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Gentleness, yes. Respect, yes. But also boldness. You don't go into the world alone. Jesus is already there. And that's why in 2 Timothy 1.7 it says, Stand firm, be strong. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. Do you remember a few years ago when uh, two young adult Christian women were arrested abroad for showing the Jesus film to Muslim children? Their release was finally secured, but their fate was uncertain for a while. When they got back to the States, they were interviewed, and one of the, interviewer, one of the interviewers asked, did you girls know it was against the law? And one of the girls said, well, we knew they wouldn't like it. But she said, when you love Afghan children and you know Jesus, you can't help but tell them about him. Well, then the reporter added, well, some people might say that for proselytizing in a Muslim country, you got what you deserve. What do you say? And the other girl said, they're probably right. Next question. You don't go into the harvest alone. Jesus is with you, so be bold. And since Jesus is reinforcing the harvest, we will also have, we should also have more passion, regardless of our giftedness, regardless of our spiritual maturity. We should be less self-conscious, more God-conscious, less dependent on our own education and experience and more dependent on God's Spirit, less dependent on our own personality and more dependent on prayer. Now passion for reaching lost people is something that can leak out over time. I was thinking this past week about my first youth ministry in Madaryville, Indiana, up in the north part of the state. That summer I lived in the front bedroom of a little house owned by an elderly widower named Roy. He had just married a 74-year-old lady who was not a Christian, and I remember the night that I stayed up and shared the gospel with her, and I could tell she was under conviction, but she said she was not ready, just not ready to commit her life to the Lord. So I went back to my room that night alone, feeling like a failure, feeling defeated, questioning my ability to persuade anyone to follow Jesus. It affected me emotionally. And I knelt down beside my bed and I prayed for her and I remember shedding tears. And I'm ashamed to tell you it's been a long time since I've cried real tears over an unsaved person, over a lost person. But Jesus wept as he prayed over Jerusalem and Jesus reached out in his hour of death to the thief on the cross. 
But I want to finish my story because it has a happy ending. The following Sunday night, I preached my final sermon before going back to college, and that dear lady answered the invitation, and old Roy's new wife became my first baptism, and I'll never forget it. <laughs> you know, I've observed that young Christians, new Christians, are often the most passionate about making disciples. Maybe it's because new Christians have more non-Christian friends. Some Christians haven't talked to a non-Christian in years. And the longer we're Christians, the more we can focus on Bible knowledge. And I'm all for that, but listen. The milk and bread and meat and honey of God's Word is food. Food is energy for activity. No exercise means we get overweight, we get out of shape, we get weak. And what's true physically is also true spiritually. Listen, if we stop making disciples, we stop growing. If we absorb God's truth, but we're not sharing it with anybody else, we're like an unused sponge. We sit, we soak, we sour. Soaking and then wringing ourselves out, sharing, that's what will keep us fresh. And if you're sharing Jesus or inviting people to church or inviting people into your small group, it changes your perspective. It does. And joy and energy will infuse your life in the process of making disciples. You'll have more joy and you will have more energy from making disciples than you will get out of discovering some new obscure truth from the book of Obadiah. It'll restore the lost wonder of your faith if you're investing yourself in the disciple-making process. Here's a picture that hangs in my office. Started out as an idea in my head and an artist at the college put it on, on a canvas. It's called The Lord of the Harvest. There's Jesus in the foreground inviting us to join him in the harvest. And there are the harvesters scattered out in the field. You can see the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And Jesus said, pray, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, don't say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They're ripe. They're ripe for harvest. In the series we've been in, Revision, we focused on our new mission as a church, being disciples, making disciples. The first couple of messages, following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, those have more to do with us. Being on mission with Jesus, that has to do with others. It has to do with your family, your friends and your neighbors and your work associates and your schoolmates, all the people in your circle of acquaintance, your circle of influence. I'm telling you, if you will be a disciple and you will make yourself available to God to work through you to make disciples, you will see things happen that have eternal significance. Will you stand with me this morning? I'm going to pray. And then we'll worship in a final song together. 
If you have a decision to make this morning, or if you have a prayer need, or if you desire to talk with someone in just a few moments as people are leaving the worship center, if you'll just be seated where you are, our section hosts, our pastors will find you and meet with you, talk with you before this morning closes. Let's bow together in prayer, then we'll worship, and then shortly we'll be dismissed. If you have a decision, just remain where you are, please. Father, today in church, we've, we've learned from the Samaritan woman what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. She made disciples. And she did it before the day was over. Lord, we pray for that kind of urgency, that kind of devotion, that kind of availability. We pray, Father, that as a church in this community, we would not be part of the landscape, that we would not be overlooked, ignored, that we would find a way to reach out and touch each one of us individually, personally in our church as a, as a lighthouse in this community. We pray, Father, that this month as we've lived with this theme, that it will make a difference in who we are as disciples and how we do at making disciples as a church in the years ahead. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.